Good morning. Hey, it is great to be with you. We're going to be in Matthew chapter 12, verses 1 to 8. If you want to crack a Bible and flip that way, we'll also put the verses on the screen. Hey, if you're new here, I'm not senior pastor Mark Kring. Um, he is finishing up his vacation, so he should be back next week. My name is Kyle Denny. I'm the youth pastor here, as well as the director of finance. And so we've been just taking a little break. We're going to be in Matthew 12, verse 1 to 8 today. Now, last week we were in the book of Hosea, and we talked about the, the nation of Israel and how they were unapologetically cheating on God. So they would serve Yahweh, they would offer Yahweh sacrifices on one hand, but they would also serve Baal. And so they were intermingling these religions, and God said they had no hesed for him. And if you remember, hesed is that warm Hebrew word. It's relational. It's what you want in any relationship in your life, whether that's friends or marriage. It was this cocktail of goodness and mercy and devotion in kindness that went the extra mile, a kindness that wasn't obligatory, but that you freely give someone. And God looked at Israel and he said, you have no hesed for me. Well, we are going to fast forward 780 years from the book of Hosea to Jesus' earthly ministry. And Israel has gone into captivity, and God has brought them out of captivity. And he's brought them safely out of captivity. They're no longer worshiping Baal. Like, they're not intermingling these religions. But that same underlying problem, that lack of hesed, has remanifested in a different way. Now, when I was growing up, I used to love this really old movie. Maybe some of you have seen it. It's called Indiana Jones and Raiders of the Lost Ark. <laughs> it's not that old, right? It just came out like 41 years ago. It's fine. The youth group students have no idea what I'm talking about. But in this movie, there was this Dr. Jones, this historian, this explorer, and he would go on searches for crazy artifacts. In the Raiders of the Lost Ark, the, the story takes off, and he's in the secret temple, and he has gone through all of these traps, right? And he has made it to the very center where this is, there's this little golden statue. And he goes up to it and brings this bag of sand. And he's kind of like measuring it. He, he takes a little bit out. And very delicately, he makes the swap. And at first, nothing happens. And he thinks he's in the clear. And then everything starts to rumble and fall apart, because he took out what was central, what was worth guarding in that temple. And in today's passage, the leaders of Israel have done that same thing. There is something central to God, central to who he is and what he delights in, and the leaders of Israel have swapped it out with something else. And things begin to rumble, things begin to shake, and it puts them on this crash course with none other than Jesus Christ himself. And so Jesus is going to talk today a lot about an issue concerning the Sabbath, but he also makes it very clear that it's not the Sabbath that is the issue. There's something deeper that's going down that he's going to address. And so our passage takes place with Matthew chapter 12, verse 1. It says, At that time, Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath, and his disciples became hungry and began to pick the heads of grain and eat. So Jesus 
is going for this nice little stroll on the Sabbath. His disciples are following behind him, and they start to get the munchies, right? It's like a Snickers commercial, you know? You're not yourself when you're hungry. And so they are going through this food field. And so they pick some heads of the grain. They pluck them. They roll them in their hands. They blow the chaff away. And then they begin to pop it into their mouth. And this small act becomes such a big tension point. Because they did that on a certain day. They did it on the Sabbath. And they run into another group of people while they're doing it. Look with me at verse 2. It says, But when the Pharisees saw this, they said to him, Look, your disciples do what is not lawful to do on a Sabbath. If you're new to church, the Pharisees are a specific sect of religious leaders. They're actually called the separated ones because they followed the Mosaic law so well, so detailed, that they tried to separate themselves from the common people, from the uneducated people. And so they knew the law inside and out, right? They have this pristine exterior, exterior devotion to the Lord, but there's something on their inside that's not quite right, because the New Testament harshly critiques them they first come into the picture when they check out John the Baptist's ministry. And John the Baptist was this awesome guy. He was this prophet that was meant to declare the way of the Lord. He was preparing the way before Jesus' ministry comes in. And so there is lots of repentance. There is lots of baptism that John is doing. And the Pharisees show up to the scene, but they don't show up to get baptized. They don't show up to repent of their works. They show up to critique John the Baptist. And so he calls them a brood of vipers. And he says to bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And that seems harsh, right? But Jesus describes them even worse. Look with me at the end of the Gospel of Matthew. In chapter 23, he says, But woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, because you shut off the kingdom of heaven from people, for you do not enter in yourselves, nor do you allow those who are entering to go in. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, because you travel around on sea and land to make one proselyte, and when he becomes one, you make him twice as much a son of hell as yourselves. And they're, they're, they're probably not putting Jesus down as a reference on that job application, right? Just a guess. Just a guess. But they are these strict religious leaders. Like they know the law inside out, but they have things turned upside down. They have a corrupt understanding of who God is and what he desires. This is not the first time the Pharisees encountered Jesus in his ministry the first time that happens is in chapter 9, and I need to take us back a step to describe this fully. In chapter 9, Jesus is eating with sinners and tax collectors, with people who have not followed God well in their lives. And the Pharisees show up and they ask Jesus, what are you doing eating with those people? Like, have you lost your mind, Jesus? And I love what Jesus says. Let me read for you in chapter 9, verse 12. He says, But when Jesus heard this, he said, It is not those who are healthy who need a physician, but those who are sick. Go and learn what this means. 
I desire compassion and not sacrifice. For I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners. Jesus gives them a little homework assignment. He refers them back to Hosea 6, the passage we were in last week. What a coincidence, right? And in that passage, God says that Israel has this wound, this sickness and this wound that is a life-threatening problem for the nation. They refuse to come back to God. They refuse to acknowledge they have a God problem. But God gives them mercy, and he says, there's going to be a day when you are going to seek me. And he describes what it's going to look like. He speaks for the future Israel. Let me put that back on the screen from last week. It says in chapter 6, verse 1, Come, let us return to the Lord. For he has torn us, but he will heal us. He has wounded us, but he will bandage us. He will revive us after two days. He will raise us up on the third day that we may live before him. So let us know. Let us press on to know the Lord. Don't miss this. Jesus is spending time with people who recognize their sickness. They recognize they have a God problem and they're starting to turn back to him. And the Pharisees are standing over here saying, cut it out, Jesus. Why would you do that, Jesus? And I can only imagine that Jesus is like, what do you mean? What do you mean? Why would I do that? That's the very reason that I'm here. And he tells them to go reread Hosea. Go learn what it means that God desires has said, that warm relational word, that cocktail of goodness and mercy and faithfulness and kindness. The very thing that the Pharisees have none of in their lives towards other people. You see, the the problem with the Pharisees was not that they were really good at offering things to God. The problem is not that they wanted to follow the law well with all their hearts. The problem was they pulled an Indiana Jones. They swapped out what was most important to God for something else. And their train of thought started to corrupt their understanding of God. They started to think that God loved them because of how well they knew their Bibles. And then it was just a small step that God loved them more than these other sinners because of how well they offered things to God, because of how well they followed after him. New Hope, have you ever fallen into that trap? Have you ever thought that God loves you more because you read your Bible today? Or that God loves you less because you missed your Bible reading? Like It's not true. It corrupts the Pharisees' understanding of who God is, and it squeezes the mercy out of their lives. And so Jesus continues on with his ministry. Some time has passed. He sends them to that passage in Hosea, and they pop back up in this passage with new accusations. It says in verse 2, But when the Pharisees saw this, they said to him, Look, your disciples do what is not lawful to do on a Sabbath. They are trying to hold Jesus accountable for his disciples' actions. They're saying it's not lawful. And they use this word, exestine, which in the Greek, it's, it means what's right, what is authorized, what is permitted, what is proper. 
their basic complaint is that this munchies break that they went on, it's not authorized. It's not allowed on the Sabbath. And the question becomes, it's not authorized by who and why? Like, don't miss that they are arguing with the author of life on what is authorized and what is not. Like, good luck with that, right? I don't think you're going to win that argument. Their complaint has to do with the Sabbath. The Sabbath is a Hebrew word, which means to cease or to desist. It was a day from Friday evening to Saturday evening in Jesus' time when all ordinary work stopped. Like, they weren't allowed to do any work on that day. It was a nationwide opportunity to honor and remember God, and it is important to God. Like, God commands it for a reason. It's to be this testimony that God is one, he is creator, but also that God is a merciful redeemer. And let me put some verses up to back that statement. When God first gives the commandments to keep holy the Sabbath, to honor the Sabbath, he then goes on to clarify why in Exodus 20. He says, For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore, the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. So those therefores are important, right? God goes through six days of creating stuff, and then on the seventh day, he ceases, he stops. Because he's tired? Because he's drained from all of that work? No. God doesn't need to recharge like we do, right? He's not drained from that. He stops, he ceases, he rests, because he just declared something was very good. And now he's going to take some time to enjoy that. And so God tells his people who are made in his image that they're going to value this too, that they're going to take time to rest and appreciate what God has done. It's going to be a testimony to him that he is a great creator. But the Bible says more in Deuteronomy 5.15. It says, you shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt, and the Lord your God brought you out of there by a mighty hand and by an outstretched arm. Therefore, the Lord your God commanded you to observe the Sabbath day. Because God saved you from your toil and your labor as a slave, because he pulled you out of Egypt, because he redeemed you, he brought you back from Egypt, therefore, you're going to rest. You're going to honor God. You're going to testify that he's not just a creator, but he's also a merciful redeemer. He doesn't continue to give up on you. He pulls you back. And so these are very important things. This is an important commandment, but it was not meant to be a burden. It was meant to be a blessing. I like the way one theologian, John Piper, put it. He said, if you work seven days a week in the hot sun to keep life and limb together with scarcely any time for leisure and reflection, would you consider it burdensome if your God came to you with omnipotent authority and said, I don't want you to have to work so much. I want you to have a day a week to rest and enjoy what really counts in life. I promise to meet your needs with just six days of work. That is not a cruel command. It's a gracious gift. The Sabbath was a blessing from the Lord. It's not a burden. But it was something that's very important to God, and the Pharisees are right to pick up that is very important to God. But they have a corrupt 
understanding of who God is and what he desires. And that bleeds into what the Sabbath is and how we should honor it. The Mosaic Law gave some details about the Sabbath, on what was considered work and what should be avoided. Like, surely you couldn't plow and harvest. You couldn't trade and sell your goods. But it didn't cover everything. It didn't give you an airtight definition of what work was, and that made the Pharisees nervous. Like, they cared about the law. They cared about the Sabbath, which is good, but they put out these extra limits. They enforced a stricter adherence to what the Sabbath was so that no one could accidentally break the Sabbath. It's as though some people would describe it as putting a fence around the Sabbath to protect it. But I'm not just anybody. I'm a youth pastor So my mind went to something else. My mind went to putting a bubble ball around it, right? Now, I know you're thinking two things. One, no, I'm not going to put this on. And two, no, you can't put it on either. We'll not get a chance. I know, I know. But it's as though the Pharisees took rest, they took the Sabbath, and they forced it into this man-made bubble ball, right? Where they're trying to protect it They're trying to make sure no one breaks it, but they take extra space to do that. Extra freedoms they give up to ensure that no one's going to break the Sabbath. And to do that, to make this bubble ball, they come up with 39 different categories of what work is. More than that, they come up with every conceivable scenario of what might happen and how to avoid breaking the Sabbath. So healing, for example, is one of those categories. And they said, if you accidentally got hurt on the Sabbath, if you broke your arm, unless it was life-threatening, they can't put that back in place. They can't set the limb. If you have a dislocated hand or shoulder or something, you can't even run cool water over it. That would be acts of healing. That's not allowed on the Sabbath. But then the question came up, well, what if we take a bath or a shower normally? Like, is it still works of healing if we take a bath and it happens to go under cold water? And they said, okay, that's fine. Like, if you would normally, in the course of your day, put your hand under cold water and it heals it, it provides comfort, then that's not really healing, that's not really work. It's fine. And so they go through all these different scenarios. They come up with this mountain of rules to encase the Sabbath. And even their own oral tradition, the Mishnah, comments about it. Listen to what the Mishnah says. They say the rules about the Sabbath are as mountains hanging by a hair. For teaching of Scripture thereon is scanty, and the rules many. So even the Jewish authority acknowledges that a lot of rules hang on a very small, itty bit of Scripture, right? It's a mountain on a string, and Jesus' disciples come up, and they bump into the bubble ball. They run into it, and the Pharisees come running up, and they say, Jesus, what did you do? Why did you let them run into the bubble ball? Why did they pop it? And Jesus is going to tell two stories. And he's essentially, he's going to look at this bubble ball. He's going to think about it. And he's going to very carefully poke a big old hole in it, right? He's going to deflate their understanding of what the Sabbath should be. He says in verse 3, he starts with the first of his two stories, But he said to them, Have you not read what David did when he became hungry? 
he and his companions, how he entered the house of God and how they ate the consecrated bread, which was not lawful for him to eat, nor for those with him, but for the priests alone. When Jesus says, have you not read what David did? We might think, no, I actually don't know what David did. I need to brush up on that story. But Jesus isn't talking to us, right? He's talking to masters of the Old Testament. Jesus is using some sarcasm here. Surely they have read this passage and he's shaming them for not understanding it. You, you see, the way the Pharisees understand the Sabbath, it cannot explain this story about David. It takes place in the Old Testament. It's in 1 Samuel 21. It's right after the first king, Saul, declares his intentions to kill the next king, David. And so David hears this, and he acts like what you or I would do. He runs away. He doesn't take food. He doesn't take weapons. He's just on the run. And he makes it to this place called Nob, which was the city of the priests. And he knocks on the door, and a priest answers. And he says, hey, can I have some bread? And the priest says, ooh, sorry, we're fresh out. All we have is this bread of the presence. Now, the bread of the presence was commanded in Scripture. This was something that Israel was supposed to do. They would put these warm loaves of bread out on the Sabbath to honor God. No one would touch them. For a week, they would sit there before God. And then the next Sabbath, when they put new bread out, they would replace the old bread. They would take that back, and that bread would be given to the priests and the sons of Aaron specifically. That's the only people that could eat that bread. Now, David, he delights in the law. That's what the Bible says. He's not out to, to poke holes into it. But he's on the run. He has no food, no weapons. And so he sets this particular law aside, and he says, yeah, that'll do. Can I have that bread, please? And they give it to him, and him and his companions eat the bread. Jesus' argument is you want to talk about existine? You want to talk about what's lawful, what is authority? Technically, according to the scriptures, David ate the bread of presence, and he wasn't allowed to eat the bread of presence. He's not permitted, and yet David's never condemned for this. Nowhere in scripture does God call David out on this. Jesus is not saying it's okay to have exceptions or rules are made to be broken. He is saying that their interpretation of the Sabbath, their understanding of God is flawed. David, because he was David, a chosen servant of the Lord, a future king, he had the authority, he had the existine to set this particular written law aside due to hunger and circumstance. If the written law was set aside for David, could not Jesus set aside a regulation which had no basis, which was part of a mountain hanging on a string? This is the argument he uses, but it only works if Jesus is as special as King David was. And Jesus is going to make the claim in a few verses that he's more special than King David is. But he doesn't stop there. He dives into a second story. In verse 5, it says, Or have you not read in the law that on the Sabbath the priests in the temple break the Sabbath and are innocent? Like, I'm pretty sure they've read that one too, Jesus, right? Like, I love that Jesus is appropriately sassy. 
He says, look, the priests go to work every Sabbath. They change the consecrated bread. They offer a double burnt offering. You're not picking on them. Why? Because there is something more important than Sabbath observance. And it's, way, it's uh, temple service. It's offering sacrifices to God. It's this other category. And, God, and Jesus' point is that there are things that are more important. Otherwise, God wouldn't have commanded them in scriptures. The stories are like, are like this are meant to be roadblocks. The Pharisees valued scripture, and so Jesus is using scripture to put up walls to help them show that their idea of the Sabbath doesn't make sense the way they're enforcing it. But he goes further. He says in verse 6, But I say to you that something greater than the temple is here. And this is a mic drop moment. This is when things would get very quiet. What he's doing, he, he's done this earlier in the Gospel of Matthew in the Sermon on the Mount. He would quote an Old Testament passage and say, you have heard it said, and then he would drag it to fulfillment and show his authority by saying, but I say to you. And he does the same thing here. He says, but I say to you, by my authority, I'm telling you that something greater than the temple is here. And the Pharisees would be squinting and turning their head and being like, yo, who does this dude think he is? Something greater than the temple? Are you loco, Jesus? Like, what is going on? The temple was the place to worship. That was the holy of holies where God's Shekinah glory would come down. What is more important? What is greater than the kingdom of, or than the temple of God? And yet something is. Jesus and the kingdom that he brings is far greater than the old temple. Like the old temple was a shadow that is built into the Jewish people's lives to help them see the true fulfillment when it arrives, and Jesus is that true fulfillment. Soon it will be understood that it's not through the temple that the Jewish people will worship God. In AD 70, that temple gets torn down brick by brick. No, no, they're going to worship God through Jesus Christ himself. And so Jesus' reasoning is that if the temple takes precedence over the Sabbath, then something greater than the temple would also take precedence over the Sabbath. He's telling the Pharisees, you don't understand who I am. You don't understand why I'm here. You're squabbling over these petty rules when something greater than the temple is here. And he goes on to say, you failed your homework. In verse 7, but if you had known what this means, I desire compassion and not a sacrifice, you would not have condemned the innocent. The Pharisees misunderstand God. Like they're not chasing after Assyria. They're not worshiping to Baal, but they still don't fundamentally understand what God desires, what he delights in. He quotes a second time Hosea, where the foundation of what God desires is this Hebrew word, hesed, that cocktail of goodness, mercy, kindness, except Jesus isn't speaking in Hebrew here. It's written in Greek. And so he uses the Greek word elios. And elios is a kindness or concern expressed for someone in need. It's mercy, it's compassion, it's pity. 
the good of others. That is hesed, love. That Elios love, it's more weighty than sacrifice. It's more weighty than what you can offer to God. Like, you can offer things to God. You can follow the ritual law perfectly. But if you neglect mercy to do it, it's no good. Jesus had issues with the Pharisees. Not because they were too intense, but because they had swapped out what was most important to God for something else. They tied their value to what they could offer God. And they missed the whole point of the Sabbath. It was not meant to be a day that was emphasized by strict rule following to honor God. It was meant to be a day to strictly honor God. There's a difference there between the two. These giant fences they put up, this bubble ball that they have, in case someone might accidentally break the Sabbath, it interfered with good works. Works of healing, for instance. How would putting cold water to soothe someone's pain, to do an act of mercy, how would that make God upset? The Sabbath is supposed to point to God. It's supposed to point that he is a merciful redeemer. You're telling me that a God of mercy is not going to be honored by an act of mercy. It's screwed up. Their priorities are misaligned. Their understanding of God is corrupted. It's why Jesus says later in the Gospel of Matthew, he says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier provisions of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. But these are the things you should have done without neglecting the others. Jesus says you ultimately hold this view of the law, this interpretation of the Sabbath, because you misunderstand God. If they would put the same energy into justice and mercy and faithfulness as they did into regulation following, they would see who Jesus really is. But they don't. The Pharisees swapped out what was most important to God, and it has led them to condemning. When Jesus says, you would not have condemned the innocent, he uses a, a Greek word that's katadikazo. It's to judge someone as definitely guilty and thus subject to punishment. When was the last time that you condemned someone? That you declared someone definitely guilty of something? You want to hear about a time I condemned senior Pastor Mark? I'm going to tell you anyways. And I don't know that I've told Pastor Mark this, so it'll be a fun conversation on Monday. Um, this was well before covid before we heard anything about social distancing, before that even came into the picture, Mark was preaching Christmas Eve services like he does. He had three services, and after those three services, everyone was cleaning up. We were trying to clean up quickly so we can get out, so we could enjoy the last bit of our Christmas Eve as well. And there in the middle of it, I saw Pastor Mark sitting at a table just drinking water. And I thought, man, that, that's not like Pastor Mark. Normally, he's pretty quick to pitch a hand where it needs to be pitched. Why is he being lazy? Like, why is he sitting there while everyone is busting their bottoms around him? If he would just help, we might get done a little quicker. Have you ever condemned someone like that? Have you ever had those thoughts in your head? Well, I, I pushed those thoughts in the back and just 
kind of went on with my day. I forgot about that until two or three months later when somehow I heard the story of what was really going on. You see, after that second Christmas Eve service, something drained Mark, and he had nothing left. He wasn't sure he was going to get through that third Christmas service. And so when I saw him at the table, I thought, man, how lazy is he? But he had given everything he had to tell people about Jesus. And it just hit me. It was like, oh, I was wrong. I declared him guilty. I declared him uh, lazy when truly he was innocent. Now the Pharisees, they are declaring the disciples guilty, but more than that, it's not just declaring them guilty that's found in this condemn. They want punishment. They want punishment for these disciples that popped their bubble, that broke their regulations. And that's what happens when you diminish mercy. When mercy gets so squeezed out of you, you start to condemn other people. You start to think that they should be punished for what they did. And that's the opposite of what God thinks. God knows that you're guilty. But instead of giving you punishment, he hands you mercy. You see how different those two pictures are? Jesus tells the Pharisees they condemned his disciples, but his disciples aren't even guilty. They're innocents. And he says, I would know, he says in verse 8, for the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. He declares his authority. To be a Lord means that others serve you. Others submit to you. Jesus is saying, the Sabbath is my servants. That's pretty cool, right? want that on the back of a t-shirt. He has supreme authority over the Sabbath, and he uses a favorite phrase for himself, son of man. Not only is the Sabbath his servant, but Sabbath's rest is as well. The whole passage I picked, it starts with this, this uh, phrase, at this time, because it comes right after a very important declaration that Jesus said. In, in chapter 11, let me read it to you quick. It says, come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Jesus says he's Lord of the Sabbath, and that's equated with rest. And he says, come to me and I can give you rest. And he uses this Greek word, which means to gain relief from toil. In a physical sense, it's what your body needs when you sleep. Like when you are so tired, your body needs to be recharged. It needs to be refreshed. But Jesus is not talking about physical rest. He's talking about rest for your souls, for the weariness that a broken world takes on you. The Pharisees are putting these heavy burdens, brick after brick after brick, on top of people. And in contrast, Jesus says, my load is light. Notice he doesn't promise that your burden will go away completely. Rather, he gives you a better tool on how to carry it. The yoke is a tool where with animals, they would yoke together two animals, and it would pull something heavy. It would pull a plow or a cart but there's also a human yoke that you could wear that would distribute the weight across your shoulders. 
Jesus never promises that burdens will go away. There will be sorrows. There will be heaviness that sets in on this side of eternity. There is work to do. I have burdens in my life. You have burdens in your life. And Jesus gives us a better way to carry those burdens. If you come to him, he says, it's going to be a light burden. I'm going to show you, I'm going to give you a yoke to handle that, to make it easier for you, to give you relief, to refresh you. And it's founded in his mercy and his compassion. He is the Lord of Sabbath. Jesus is what it truly means to cease from work. Like he takes all of your sins away. He pays for every single one of them. And by mercy, he invites you to come rest in him. To come enjoy how much of a redeemer he truly is. Do you want that, New Hope? Like, do, do you want Jesus' rest? Do you continue to come to him again and again and again? When you have heavy things in your life, do you take his yoke on you? Do you wrap yourself up in his mercy? Does it give you relief? The Pharisees wouldn't do it. No way. They, they don't need any help, right? Only sick people go to a physician, and the Pharisees are on their deathbeds telling each other, we're fine, as they cough up blood, as they condemn everyone else. Now look, Bible notes here. I'm going to step over here. And I want to just share some of my heart in teaching you about Hesed. The Pharisees, they knew their Bibles really well. If you sit under Pastor Mark's teaching long enough, you will know your Bible really well too. And there will be this subtle temptation to do what the Pharisees did, to swap out what is central to God, his mercy, with what you can bring to him instead. And I have seen your mercy, New Hope. I have seen the compassion you have for others. But we've also been through a pandemic. I've seen a little bit of the ugliness that's beneath. Some of the condemnation that can happen when someone's wrong and we want them to know it. I've seen that in my own heart, too. And so my encouragement, my plea, is that we would continue to go to the Lord of the Sabbath to rest in him, to wrap ourselves in his mercy and extend that mercy to other people. There are people in your lives that need your mercy, but there are people in your lives that don't deserve it, that are least likely to get it. If you refuse to extend mercy to them, somewhere you've forgotten or you don't understand who God is, that that is central to who he is. He is a God that delights in hesed, not just in what you can offer to him. And so I'm, I'm going to pray that way to close us out. Lord, I thank you for this congregation. I thank you for their warm hearts and the hesed they have shown in the past. And I pray that you just keep pride and arrogance from them, Lord. It is such a fingertip away from acknowledged success. Would you keep them in the center of who you are? Would you remind them, both with their thoughts and with their hearts, about your mercy, God? That you loved them when they had nothing to offer, and that hasn't changed now that they are following you. 
Lord, I pray that you would stir up mercy in our souls. I pray that you'd stir up kindness in our souls and that it would be this mighty beacon that goes out that we would love you and we would want others to step into loving you even when they're prickly, even when they don't deserve our mercy and kindness. And I pray these powerful things in your son's name, Jesus Christ. Amen. I love you, New Hope. Have a great week.